Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiganian Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August 4th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we're going to present part 5 of our commentary on Paul's first epistle to Timothy. And this is subtitled, Rome pagan and Catholic. Discussing 1 Timothy chapter 3, the end of it last week, we took a lengthy digression to explain that in the many places where Paul of Tarsus referred to the various mysteries of the Christian faith, none of these things should any longer be mysteries to Christians, because Paul himself had explained them wherever he had mentioned them. Once Paul explained them, it is only common sense that they should be mysteries no longer. But in its doctrines, the Roman Catholic Church still considers them to be mysteries, in spite of the fact that Paul explained them as he mentioned them in his epistles. But the very essence of Christianity informs us that certain tenets of the faith should remain mysteries to outsiders, for which reason Christ had spoken in parables. However, they should not be mysteries to Christians. To Christians there is no mystery of the church, since Paul taught that the church was to consist of the people of the nations of those Israelites who were scattered in antiquity. And he brought the gospel to those same people as he was commanded to do. Furthermore, to Christians there is no mystery to the mystery of God, because Paul had taught that Yahshua, or Jesus Christ, is Yahweh God manifest in the flesh, and there should be nothing too difficult to understand about that. Paul was not alone, as these same things are also taught in the writings of the prophets and in the gospel itself. In the revelation of Yahshua Christ, we learn that by our own time, the mystery of God was to be finished, and it is, because as identity Christians, we announce its fulfillment in spite of the denials of the Roman Catholics and the other denominational churches. Now, as we turn our attention to 1 Timothy chapter 4, we must note that it is not a coincidence that Paul has been describing the qualifications for the appointment of pious and honorable men, or I should say the election, of pious and honorable men into positions of leadership in the Christian community. And now, here in this chapter, he turns to describe those who would depart into error, Therefore, his words here should be interpreted in that same context to be referring to leaders of Christian assemblies. So now we shall see a warning concerning what Paul understood would come to happen to future ecclesiastical leaders and how they would go astray. In a different manner, Paul issued a similar warning which is recorded in Acts chapter 20 where upon his last meeting with the leaders of the Christian assemblies at Ephesus, perhaps a year after writing this 
very epistle to Timothy while Timothy was in Ephesus. Paul had said the following, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, speaking to the elders, the supervisors or bishops of the Christian assemblies of the Ephesians, to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. So his words to Timothy here, in the opening verses of this chapter, actually foreshadow what he would later say to the Ephesians themselves. So commencing with 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now the Spirit specifically states that in the latter times some will withdraw from the faith, cleaving to wandering spirits and teachings of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, their own consciences having been branded with iron. And we will stop here. The word Kosteriazomahi, Strong's number 2743. Yes, that's a mouthful. Kosteriazomahi. This word appears only here in the New Testament. And being in the form of a perfect participle, it is translated as having been branded with iron. It may have been written simply as having been cauterized. The 6th century Uncio manuscript, 0241, has a variation which would cause us to render the verse, the second verse here, a little differently, speaking lies in hypocrisy and cauterizing their own consciences. The phrase reflects the degree of close-mindedness of the men whom Paul intends to describe. That departing from the faith, they could not turn away from their error, as if their minds were so much closed that it was as if they were sealed shut by being cauterized, and therefore they could not be opened again. With this we may also observe that a man's own lies are the catalyst for developing such a closed mind. A man's own lies are the tool by which the mind becomes cauterized or hardened and prevented from turning to God. One observation we must make in reference to this passage is to note the incredible prescience which is reflected by Paul's words here and in several different aspects. First, in Paul's own time, only a relative scattering of people throughout the oikumene or Greco-Roman world, had actually already accepted Christianity. And at the same time, the few who did accept it were being persecuted both by Jews and by Roman pagans, mostly at the instigation of the Jews. So from a carnal perspective, Paul could hardly have known 
that enough of the world would ultimately accept Christ to the degree that the some who would withdraw from the faith would even be significant enough to mention. In a mostly pagan world, it would not make a difference if some withdrew from the faith, if most are not of the faith. But evidently Paul was confident that the gospel of Christ would prevail throughout the oikumene, or though some would not be worth mentioning if pagans remained in the majority of the world which he foresaw. Paul certainly understood that Christianity would prevail, and Christ himself had expressed that same confidence on frequent occasions in the gospel. Secondly, as we read the subsequent verses which describe some of the false teachings Paul is referring to, it seems as if Paul also knew exactly what errors would be set the ecclesiastical leaders that he was warning would arise in the future. Presenting these statements, we shall illustrate this in the writings of early Christians, as well as in some of the charges made against the Roman Catholic Church in more recent centuries. The history of the Christian Church shows that Paul's warnings were fulfilled with precision. But before addressing the withdrawal from the faith, we must also note that there are several hypotheses which attempt to explain which passage of Scripture that Paul may have been referring to here, where he says that the Spirit specifically states that in a latter time some will withdraw from the faith. But Christ himself had warned in the Gospel, as it is recorded in Mark chapter 13, to take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my mind, in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. These words were recorded similarly by Luke in chapter 1 of his Gospel, in, I'm sorry, in chapter 21 of his Gospel. And in both of these places, Mark 13, Luke 21, they are found in the discourse which Christ had given in answer to the questions that we also see recorded in Matthew chapter 24, where the apostles had asked him, When shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming? And of the end of the world? So Paul is most likely referring to Christ as the Spirit here. And this is verified to some degree in the epistle of Jude, where that apostle wrote, But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should, there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. Now we may receive an objection that the Roman Catholic Church did not develop in the last time, as Jude has it, or even in the later times, according to Paul. But it certainly did, because first, the phrases are merely a figure of speech. Hebraisms referring to the future. This is evident in the use of similar Hebrew language in Genesis 49, verse 1 where Jacob called his sons together for reason that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. And the things he told them 
were indeed fulfilled in antiquity. Additionally, the apostles themselves believed that they were in the last time, which is evident in Hebrews chapter 1, where Paul wrote that Yahweh has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And also in 1 John chapter 2, where John had written, Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is, it is the last time. Of course, John was referring to the Edomite Jews, where he described those particular Antichrists. But the apostles did not know just how long this last time was really going to last. We cannot say it is over until there are no more antichrists, and that day is certainly going to come. Where Paul said that those withdrawing from the faith would cleave to wandering spirits and teachings of demons, we shall see that the Roman Catholic priesthood, as well as many sects known among the early Christians, did indeed adopt practices and doctrines from the pagan priests, and the pagan idols certainly were considered devils and demons by Yahweh God and by the apostles of Christ. For instance, referring to the sacrifices made on the altars of pagan gods, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul had exclaimed that the things which the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. Paul is only invoking the same reference, the same language which Moses made concerning the nations of the children of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, where he wrote concerning them that they sacrificed to devils and not to God, to small g gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. So it is evident that Paul is informing Timothy that future ecclesiastical leaders would steer Christians into paganism, and they did. Paul now enumerates some of the errors they would teach as he says that they will be forbidding to marry, to abstain from foods, things which Yahweh has established for participation with gratitude for those with faith and knowledge of the truth. There's a word here. There's a couple of words here that we have to discuss at length. The Greek verb, ketizo, Strong's number 2936, is properly to found, used of things such as colonies, and then to establish, according to Liddell and Scott. And it may also be to create or to invent, but Paul is hardly saying that anything or everything which was created by Yahweh may be eaten, a notion which would lead into all sorts of error. You could even justify cannibalism. Rather, Paul is saying that whatever was established by Yahweh may be eaten, and for that establishment we must look to the Old Testament law in order to determine what Yahweh had established, which we will see in verse 5 here. Here the King James Version 
has translated a noun with a preposition as a verb, where it has to be received. And instead we have for participation, the things which Yahweh has established for participation. The phrase is from the preposition ice, which is to, or into, or for, among other things. And the accusative form of the noun metalapsis, which is literally a taking with another. And for that reason, Liddell and Scott define the word as participation. Metalapsis is a taking or a partaking of something along with somebody else. You're taking something together. That's participation. Now, in reference to what Yahweh has established, Paul says, because every establishment of Yahweh is good, and nothing to be rejected, being received with gratitude. For it is sanctified through the word of Yahweh and intercession. Now, not everything Yahweh created is sanctified. Yahweh created unclean animals for specific purposes. Those things cannot be sanctified. They don't go on the altar. They don't go down our throats. Paul is not saying that everything created by Yahweh is good for the purposes that he outlines here. We cannot marry or eat something simply because Yahweh may have created it. There are established rules governing what we should marry and what we should eat. And that is what Paul is referring to here. Things which have been sanctified for a particular purpose through the word of Yahweh. As he says in verse 5. If something is not sanctified through the word of Yahweh, such as swine or shellfish, then neither should we eat it. And there's a lot of things we probably shouldn't marry either. The Greek word katisma here, where we have establishment, the Greek word katisma, if I have to pronounce it correctly, katisma is a noun derived from the verb katizo, which we have just encountered in the preceding verse. Here it is an establishment in agreement with the sense of the verb as it is used in the preceding verse. Joseph Thayer, in his Greek lexicon, Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, defines katisma as a thing founded or a created thing. Liddell and Scott define katisma as a colony or a foundation and then more generally, a building. Secondarily, they say that katisma was used as a synonym for katesis. Katesis is the word usually translated as creation in the King James Version of the Bible, in the New Testament. In its primary sense, katesis is a founding or a foundation. And in this sense, we have translated the word as establishment in this passage. Yahweh established things for a particular purpose, for which, he, for which reason he also gave us laws governing marriage and food. Now we shall take another digression. 
to see what it is that Paul was presaging here, what he was prophesying of here, in the archaic use of the word presage, and how quickly such evil doctrines made their way into certain Christian sects, and ultimately made their way into the Roman Catholic Church. Paul of Tarsus had explained in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that men eligible for ecclesiastical leadership were to have been married and to have raised obedient families. And it was not long before a tyrannical church organization disregarded his instructions. While it hypocritically claims to be founded on the same apostles which it denies. As Paul also warned here that such heretics would speak lies in hypocrisy. In this endeavor, we will begin with Tadian. I may be mispronouncing that. Tadian, T-A-T-I-A-N. Tadian was a 2nd century Christian writer of the East, who was also called Tadian the Assyrian. And we would not really consider him a Christian, but that is the way he is generally described. Whether he was authentically an Assyrian or not is immaterial, as at that time it is quite plausible that there were still Assyrians in Mesopotamia, although they had long lost their kingdom and their ability to rule over themselves, their ability to self-government. Our source for this, for Tadian, is the Antinicene Fathers, Volume 2, which are the translations of the writings of the early Christian church fathers, as they're called, down to 325 A.D. From the address of Tadian to the Greeks, from chapter 42, we're starting at the end, which is subtitled by the editors, Concluding Statement as to the Author. Tadian writes, These things, O Greeks, I, Tadian, a disciple of the barbarian philosophy, have composed for you. I was born in the land of the Assyrians, having been first instructed in your doctrines, and afterwards in those which I now undertake to proclaim. Henceforward, knowing who God is and what is his work, I present myself to you prepared for an examination concerning my doctrines, while I adhere immovably to that mode of life which is according to God. And we might think backwards of this passage. If you want to think that the Greeks are Christians, Tadian's not addressing Christian Greeks. He's addressing Hellenistic Greeks. And when he refers to the barbarian philosophy, he's referring to his version of Christianity. We'll find out later that he actually studied under Justin Martyr, but he departed from what Justin had taught after the death of Justin. Now, we are not going to read much from Tadian himself. We are only going to read from the fragments of Tadian's writings, from the same source volume, where we shall also see many of the refutations made against him. These fragments are where Tadian was referred to and cited in the works of other ancient authors. First from Clement of Alexandria. 
Clement writes, in his treatise, meaning in Tadian's treatise, right? In his treatise, concerning perfection according to the Savior, he writes, and Clement quotes, Consent indeed fits for prayer, but fellowship in corruption weakens supplication. At any rate, by the permission, he certainly, he certainly, though delicately, forbids. For while he permits them to return to the same on account of Satan and incontinence, he exhibits a man who will attempt to serve two masters. God, by the consent, but by want of consent, incontinence, fornication, and the devil. And basically what Tadian believed is that Christ permitted marriage, but that marriage was incontinence, abusing Paul of Tarsus's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And therefore, if you married, even though Christ permitted it, you went astray. And if you married, you were serving incontinence, fornication, and the devil. Clement goes on to say that a certain person inveighs against generation, speaking of Tadian in reference to the bearing of children, calling it corruptible and destructive. And someone does violence to scripture, applying to procreation the Savior's words, lay not up treasure on earth where moth and rust corrupt. And he is not ashamed to add to these the words of the prophet, you shall grow old as a garment and the moth shall devour you. This is what Tadian was teaching, that human reproduction was actually corruption. And then Clement says, And in like manner, they adduce the saying concerning the resurrection of the dead, The sons of that world neither marry nor are given in marriage. Against Tadian, who says the words, Let there be light, are taken to be as a prayer? If he who uttered it knew a superior God, how is it that he says, I am God, and there is none besides me? In other words, Tadian believed that when Yahweh God said in Genesis chapter 1, let there be light, that he was actually praying instead of making a declaration. So Clement goes on to say, concerning Tadian, he said that there are punishments for blasphemies, foolish talking, and licentious words, which are punished and chastised by the Logos. And he said that women were punished on account of their hair and ornaments by a power placed over those things, which also gave strength to Samson by his hair, and punishes those who by the ornament of their hair are urged on to fornication. And finally, Clement says of Tadian, that Tadian separates the old man and the new, but not, as we say, understanding the old man to be the law and the new man to be the gospel. We agree with him in saying the same thing, but not in the sense he wishes, abrogating the law as if it belonged to another god. Next, we'll read from Jerome's 
condemnations of Tadian or criticisms of Tadian. Tadian, who maintaining the imaginary flesh of Christ, pronounces all sexual connection impure, who was also the very violent heresiarch of the Encratites, a sect which we shall see here mentioned by other writers. The very violent heresiarch of the Encratites employs an argument of this sort, and Jerome quoting Tadian says, If anyone sows to the flesh, of the flesh he shall reap corruption. And then Jerome states, But he who but he sows to the flesh who is joined to a woman, repeating Tadian's belief. Therefore he who takes a wife and sows in the flesh, of the flesh he shall reap corruption. Jerome goes on to say, Tadian condemns and rejects not only marriage, but also meats which God has created for use. In another place he says, Quoting Tadian, But ye gave Nazarites wine to drink, and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophecy not. On this, perhaps, Tadian, the chief of the Encratites, endeavors to build this heresy, asserting that wine is not to be drunk, since it was commanded in the law that the Nazarites were not to drink wine, and now those who give the Nazarites wine are accused by the prophet. And in one more place, Jerome says, Tadian, the patriarch of the Encratites, who himself rejected some of Paul's epistles, believed this especially, that is addressed to Tires, ought to be declared to be the apostles, thinking little of the assertion of Marcion and others who agree with him on this point. Next we'll hear from Irenaeus. Succeeding from the church and being elated and puffed up by a conceit of his teacher, as if he were superior to the rest, he formed his own peculiar type of doctrine, imagining certain invisible eons like those of Valentinus, and denouncing marriage as defilement and fornication in the same way as Marcion and Saturninus and denying the salvation of Adam as an opinion of his own. Irenaeus goes on to say that Tadian, attempting from time to time to make use of Paul's language, that in Adam all die, but ignoring that where sir abounded, I'm sorry, where sin abounded, grace has much more abounded. Irenaeus's criticism of Tadian. Now we will hear from Origen on Tadian. But Tadian, not understanding that the expression let there be is not always precative, but sometimes imperative, which is actually how I most often translate the expression in the Christogenian New Testament, most impiously imagined concerning God, who said, Let there be light, that he prayed rather than commanded light to be, as if, as he impiously thought, God was in darkness. So Origen 
attributed to Tadian to believe that God was in darkness, but as we saw before, Clement of Alexandria attributed to Tadian the idea that God making a prayer of let there be light instead of a command must have been praying to another God. Both men have good perspectives on that. Lastly, we will hear from the 18th century Christian writer Martin Ruth, the translator of the work on Tadian, then notes that Archelaus, Bishop of Cara in Mesopotamia, around 280 AD, classes his countryman Tadian with Marcion, Sibelius, and others who have made up for themselves a peculiar science, a theology of their own. So we see that from several witnesses that Marcion's error was very much like that of Tadian. And Marcion also rejected most, if not all, of the epistles of Paul. I believe he rejected them all, but so did the Ebionites and other sects in the East, probably under influence of the Jews, if I had to guess. Now we shall examine longer excerpts from early Christian writers. Beginning with Irenaeus, who lived from about 130 A.D., to 202 AD, and who wrote diatribes against many early heretics, including Tadian and the Encratites, as we have already seen. This is, once again, from the Antinicene Fathers. This is from Volume 1. This is from Book 1 of Irenaeus Against Heretics, from Chapter 28. The chapter is subtitled, and the subtitles are created by the editors, Doctrines of Tadian, the Encratites, and Others. Many offshoots of numerous heresies have already been formed from those heretics we have described. This arises from the fact that numbers of them indeed, I'm sorry I need a drink, This arises from the fact that numbers of them, indeed, we may say all, desire themselves to be teachers and to break off from the particular heresy in which they have been involved. Forming one set of doctrines out of a totally different system of opinions, and then again others from others, they insist upon teaching something new, declaring themselves to be the inventors of any sort of opinion which they may have been able to call into existence. Now, as an aside, this practice persists under this very day, and especially in what we call cushion identity. Continuing with Irenaeus, to give an example, springing from Saturninus and Marcion, those who are called encratites, which means self-controlled, from the Greek meaning of the word. Preached against marriage, thus setting aside the original creation of God, and indirectly blaming him who made the male and female for the propagation of the human race. Some of those reckoned among them have also introduced abstinence from animal food, meaning flesh, thus proving themselves ungrateful to God, 
who formed all things. They deny, too, the salvation of him who was first created. But it is it is but lately, however, that this opinion has been invented among them. A certain man named Tadian first introduced the blasphemy. He was a hearer of Justin's, referring to Justin Martyr, who died about 165 B.C. So we see how early these that these heresies had formed within Christian communities. He was a hearer of Justin's, and as long as he continued with him, he expressed no such views. But after his martyrdom, he separated from the church, and excited, and puffed up by the thought of being a teacher, as if he were superior to others, he composed his own peculiar type of doctrine. He invented a system of certain invisible aeons, like the followers of Valentinus, while Marcion, I'm sorry, while like Marcion and Saturninus, he declared that marriage was nothing else than corruption and fornication. But his denial of Adam's salvation was an opinion entirely due to himself. In other words, he didn't get that from Marcion and Saturninus. And many in CI also follow that heresy today. Continuing with Irenaeus. Others, again, following upon Basilides and Carpocrates, have introduced promiscuous intercourse and a plurality of wives, and are indifferent about eating meat sacrificed to idols under Roman law and under the law of the Greeks, at least in the Hellenistic period, a man could only have one wife. I'm pretty sure that was in Hellenistic Greece. I do know that that was in Rome. Of course, a man could have concubines, but only one wife. These others have introduced promiscuous intercourse and a plurality of wives and are indifferent about eating meat sacrificed to idols, maintaining that God does not greatly regard such matters. But why continue? For it is an impracticable, impracticable attempt to mention all those who, in one way or another, have fallen away from the truth. So that's Irenaeus on some of these early heresies. And we see exactly what Paul was talking about in the second century maybe a hundred years after Paul's death. These heresies had already arisen. Now we are going to make a citation from another and slightly later second century Christian writer, which is Tertullian. But before we do, we shall see that Tertullian himself may have been confused on the issue of marriage and other things, since he was a follower of Tadian in some respects, I should say, in at least some respects, and also of the sect of the Montanists, which was a Phrygian sect of the second century. In other respects, this is the relevant portion of the introductory note to the writings of Tadian the Assyrian by the translator J. E. Ryland. This portion is, inter- it is relevant to a discussion of Tertullian. I have read much of Tertullian, his Apology, and some of his other writings, but I haven't read 
all of Tertullian, which is pretty voluminous. J.E. Ryland says, But the awful malaria of Montanism was even now rising like a fog out of the marshes, and was destined to leave its lasting impression upon Western Christianity. This is important to understand here. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. Our author, Tadian, this is the introduction to Tadian, our author, alas, laid the egg which Tertullian hatched and invented terms which that great author, Tertullian, raised to their highest power. For he was rather the disciple of Tadian than of the Phrygians, who were the Montanists, though they kindled his strange fire. After Tertullian, the whole subject of marriage became entangled with sophistries, which have ever since adhered to the Latin churches, and introduced the most corrosive results into the vitals of individuals and of nations. Now Tertullian, I don't think, was against marriage, as we shall see here. But our author said what he said, and sooner or later we'll investigate why he said it. Now to cite Tertullian from the Prescription Against Heretics, which is found in the Anti-Nicene Fathers, Volume 3. This is from Chapter 33 of the Prescription Against Heretics. This is subtitled, Present Heresies. Now, I'm reading this subtitle, it's a little lengthy. Remember that these subtitles are actually the product of the editors, and usually not the writers themselves. And in this subtitle, there's some confusion, so we're going to discuss that as a, as, as a short digression. This chapter 33 of the Prescription Against Heretics is subtitled, Present Heresies, and then in parentheses, Seedlings of the Tares Noted by the Sacred Writers, Already Condemned in Scripture, This Descent of her Later Heresy from the Earlier Traced in Several Instances. Tertullian claiming to be tracing these heresies from one source to another. He says, besides all this, I add a review of the doctrines themselves, which, existing as they did in the days of the apostles, were both exposed and denounced by the said apostles. For by this method they will be more easily reprobated when they are detected to have been even then in existence, or at any rate, to have been seedlings of the tares which then were. Now there is more to present of this passage, but before we continue we must note that in the summary of the chapter, which does not belong to Tertullian, we may be led to believe that the heresies themselves 
are seedlings of the tares. But here in a text, Tertullian certainly means to refer to certain people as tares, where he clearly refers to those heresies as seedlings of the tares which then were. So we are not certain that church writers such as J.E. Ryland fully understood Tertullian. Now to continue with our citation and Tertullian's words. Paul, in his first epistle to the Corinthians, sets his mark on certain who denied and doubted the resurrection. This opinion was the especial property of the Sadducees. A part of it, however, is maintained by Marcion and Apelles and Valentinus and all other impugners of the resurrection. Writing also to the Galatians, he inveighs against such men as observed and defend circumcision and the Mosaic law. Thus runs Hebion's heresy. Such also as forbid to marry, he reproaches in his instructions to Timothy. Now this is the teaching of Marcion and his follower Apelles. The apostle directs a similar blow against those who said that the resurrection was past already. Such an opinion did the Valentinians assert of themselves. Again, when he mentions endless genealogies, one also recognizes Valentinus, in whose system a certain son, whosoever he be, of a new name, and not that one only, generates of his own grace, sense, and truth. And these in like manner produce of themselves word and life, while these again afterwards beget man and the church. From these primary eight, ten other sons after them spring, and then the twelve others arise with their wonderful names to complete the mere story of the thirty sons. The same apostle, when disproving, disapproving, of those who are in bondage to elements, points us to some dogma of Hermogenes, who introduces matter as having no beginning, and then compares it with God, who has no beginning. By thus making the mother of the elements a goddess, he has it in his power to be in bondage to a being which he puts on a par with God. John, however, in the Apocalypse, is charged to chastise those who eat things sacrificed to idols and who commit fornication. There are even now another sort of Nicolaitans. Theirs is called the Gahian heresy. But in his epistle, he especially designates those as antichrists who denied that Christ was come in the flesh and who refused to think that Jesus was the Son of God. The one dogma Marcion maintained, the other Hebion. The doctrine, however, of Simon's sorcery, which inculcated the worship of angels, was itself actually reckoned amongst idolatries and condemned by the Apostle Peter in Simon's own person. <coughs> so at least Tertullian did not renounce marriage, as Tadian did. And he informs us that Marcion and others had taken up the heresy which Paul condemned here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. While Tertullian is esteemed to have lived from about 155 A.D. to about 240 A.D., a contemporary writer, Hippolytus, 
who is believed to have lived from about 170 to 235 AD, also wrote of the early heretics. This is found in the Anti-Nicene Fathers, Volume 5. This is from Hippolytus's The Refutation of All Heresies, Book 8, Chapter 13, which is briefly subtitled The Doctrines of the Encratites. Hippolytus says, Others, however, styling themselves Encratites, acknowledge some things concerning God and Christ in like manner with the Church. In respect, however, of their mode of life, they pass their days inflated with pride. They suppose that by meats, or properly by foods, they magnify themselves, while abstaining from animal food, which is a reference to flesh, and being water drinkers, so we see that they forbade wine, which at least some Christians evidently thought was also heretical. (laughs) And being water drinkers, and forbidding to marry, and devoting themselves during the remainder of life to habits of asceticism. But persons of this description are estimated cynics rather than Christians, inasmuch as they do not attend to the words spoken against them through the Apostle Paul. Now he, meaning Paul, predicting the novelties that were to be hereafter, how he, how he had translated or interpreted that phrase in the later days, right? Just in the future. Now he, predicting the novelties that were to be hereafter, introduced ineffectually by certain heretics, made a statement thus, and he's basically quoting from our passage, The Spirit speaks expressly, In the later time certain will depart from sound doctrine, giving heed to seducing spirits and the doctrines of devils, uttering falsehoods in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, to abstain from meats, which God has created to be partaken of with thanksgiving by the faithful and those who know the truth. Because every creature of God is good and nothing to be rejected which is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. So even though I don't like the Greek to English translation, we still see the same thing, right? This voice then, of the blessed Paul is sufficient for the refutation of those who live in this manner and plume themselves on being just and for the purpose of proving that also this tenet of the Encratites constitutes a heresy but even though there have been denominated certain other heresies I mean those of the Cainites, Ophites or Noachites and of others of this description I have not deemed it requisite to explain the things said or done by these, lest on this account they may consider themselves somebody, or deserving of consideration. Since, however, the statements concerning these appear to be sufficient, let us pass on to the cause of evils to all, the heresy of the Noetians. 
Now, after we have laid bare the root of this heresy, and stigmatized openly the venom, as it were, lurking within it, let us seek to deter from an error of this description those who have been impelled into it by a violent spirit, as if it were by a swollen torrent. Now, Tertullian just hates these Noetians, and we'll talk on them briefly. I'm sorry, that's not Tertullian, that's Hippolytus. Hippolytus hates the Noetians. Now for another digression. This is what Hippolytus said in part of this sect of the Noetians in Book 10, Chapter 22 of the same work, a chapter which is subtitled The Phrygians or Montanists Continued. He says, but others of them, being attached to the heresy of the Noetians, entertain similar opinions to those relating to the silly women of the Phrygians and to Montanus. As regards, however, the truths appertaining to the Father of the entire of existing things, they are guilty of blasphemy because they assert that He is Son and Father, visible and invisible, begotten and unbegotten, mortal and immortal. These have taken occasion from a certain noetis to put forward their heresy. But we would have to reject Hippolytus here. We would agree with Noetis that Yahweh and Yahshua Christ are one and not three. And we can see how early the Trinity heresy had also entered the early Christian churches. So far as we can determine, Hippolytus was the only one of the early Christian writers to address the Noetians. I didn't find any mention of them in any of the others. Finally, we shall quote from Origen, who lived just slightly later than these other men, from about 185 A.D. to 254 A.D. This is found in the Antinicene Fathers, Volume 4, from Origen Against Celsus, Book 5, Chapter 64, where he is discussing the same verse of 1 Timothy, Chapter 4, as Celsus had wrongly interpreted it. Excuse me. Origen says, Celsus appears to me to have misunderstood the statement of the Apostle, which declares that in the later times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with the hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which... God is created to be received with thanksgiving of them who believe. And of course, Origen is paraphrasing, which is fine. And he goes on to say, And to have misunderstood also those who employed these declarations of the Apostle against such as had corrupted the doctrines of Christianity. And it is owing to this cause that Celsus has said that certain among the Christians are called cauterize in the ears, and also that some are termed enigmas, a term which we have never met. The expression of stumbling block is, indeed, a frequent occurrence in these writings, an appellation which we are accustomed to apply to those who turn away simple persons, and those who are easily deceived from sound doctrine. 
But neither we, nor I imagine any other, whether Christian or heretic, know of any who are called, or who are styled, sirens, who betray and deceive, and stop their ears, and change into swine, those whom they delude. And yet this man, referring to Celsus, who affects to know everything, uses such language as the following. And quoting Celsus, he says, You may hear all those who differ so widely, and who assail each other in their disputes with the most shameless language, uttering the world, the words, The world is crucified to me, and I unto the world. And that was the passage upon which 3rd century Christian asceticism was founded. And that's a mistake which persists into modern times. And Origen goes on to continue his citation of, of Celsus. And this is the only phrase which it appears. Well, he goes on to continue speaking of Celsus, I'm sorry. And this is the only phrase which, it appears, Celsus could remember out of Paul's writings. The world is crucified to me and I to the world. And yet, why should we not also employ innumerable other quotations from the scriptures, such as, For though we do walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So, Origen is basically using another citation from Paul of Tarsus to discredit Celsus's interpretation of the first citation. Then, in the next chapter of the same work, in chapter 65, Origen continues, But since he, meaning Celsus, asserts that you may hear all those who differ so widely saying, The world is crucified to me, and I under the world. We shall show the falsity of such a statement. For there are certain heretical sects which do not receive the epistles of the Apostle Paul, as the two sects of Ebionites, and those who are termed Encratites. Those, then, who do not regard the Apostle as a holy and wise man will not adopt his language and say, The world is crucified to me, and I under the world. And consequently, in this point too, Celsus is guilty of falsehood. He continues, moreover, to linger over the accusations which he brings against the diversity of sects which exist, but does not appear to me, to origin, to be accurate in the language which he employs, nor to have carefully observed or understood how it is that those Christians who have made progress in their studies say that they are possessed of greater knowledge than the Jews." and also whether they acknowledge the same scriptures but interpret them differently or whether or whether they do not recognize these books as divine for we find both of these views prevailing among the sects he then continues quoting Celsus again although they have no foundation for the doctrine let us examine the system itself and in the first place let us mention the corruptions which they have made through ignorance and misunderstanding when in the discussion of elementary principles they express their opinions in the most absurd manner on things which they do not understand, such as the following. 
and then ending his citation of Celsus, Origen says, and then to certain expressions which are continually in the mouths of the believers in Christianity, he opposes certain others from the writings of the philosophers, who, with the same object of making it appear that the noble statements which Celsus supposes to be used by Christians have been expressed in better and clearer language by the philosophers in order that he might drag away to the study of philosophy those who were caught by opinions which at once evidenced their noble and religious character. We shall, however, here terminate the fifth book and begin the sixth with what follows. So we see the introduction of philosophy was odious to origin, and it should be. So the Encratites were taking Paul's own words and twisting them out of their original context in order to in order to disregard other things which Paul had said, things which were indeed natural and within the law of God, while at the same time denying the validity of Paul's writings. But where Paul said, the world is crucified to me and I under the world, he was talking about the putting away of things that were in violation of the law, about the sin which the natural man is susceptible to, and not about things such as communion or marriage, which are in accordance with the law, and which Yahweh God himself had established for our benefit. But we must remember that when Paul wrote of these things here in 1 Timothy, it was primarily in connection to ecclesiastical leadership, and not merely to the life of Christians in general. Although, while speaking of Christian life in general, he had also said in his epistle to the Hebrews that marriage is valuable in every way. And later here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we shall see Paul connect the raising of faithful children with a respect for one's ancestors. So Paul clearly rejected such asceticism for the general assembly as well as for the leadership. The only place that Paul advised against marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 was in relation to the persecutions which Christians were facing at that time. Paul warned that if you choose to marry, you will suffer in the flesh. Why? Because very, it was very likely that your children would be left as orphans, or your wife would be left without a husband, or you would be left without your wife. So that's the only time he spoke he advised against marriage for that reason. But he didn't advise against marriage outside of the fear of broken families in a time of persecution. Now that we have seen how early the various Christian communities became divided up into a multitude of heresies, and how many of the heretics had actually followed the pagan idolatries and pagan philosophers, we shall see from another source that the Roman Catholic Church also followed such heretics for their own prohibition of clerics to marry. But first we must make an admonition 
We certainly know that the Catholic priests, bishops, and popes are not, and never were, legitimate Christian ecclesiastical leaders in the manner in which the apostles of Christ had organized the original Christian communities. For the most part, they were instead a caste of professional priests who had subjugated Christianity unto themselves. The orthodoxy of Rome was an orthodoxy of imperialism and the professional Roman priesthood, which was never actually Christian in nature. The phrase Christian priest does not appear in the writings of Christians prior to the 4th century AD, and the word priest, where it appears in a Christian sense, is never associated with a professional priesthood in the New Testament. But the Roman Catholic hierarchy was nevertheless the de facto ecclesiastical leadership of the Middle Ages, in spite of the illegitimacy of their offices before Christ. So here we shall cite a book which shall hopefully elucidate the origins and results of the Roman Catholic Church's prohibition of its priests to marry. The following lengthy excerpt is from a book which I will provide a PDF copy of in the notes to this program. It's from a book titled Pagano Papismus, or An Exact Parallel Between Roman Pagan and Roman Christian, Rome Christian, in their doctrines and ceremonies. It was written by Joshua Stopford, the rector at All Saints Church in the city of York, and it was first published in 1765. Our edition was reprinted in 1845 in London. We will cite from page 174, from chapter 15 of the book, which is subtitled, The Single Life of Priests. Reciting this, we are going to skip over or abbreviate technical things, such as citations, since they are in a form which is difficult to read. We will also refrain from reading the Latin version of the citations, although we will provide our own translations of several of them, in spite of the fact that our Latin is not quite proficient. He begins the chapter by saying that Pope Syricius, speaking of the marriage of priests, saith, Let this reproach be taken away, which Gentilism does accuse. The word Gentile being used in a totally different manner than it's used today. Whence it is clear, and he says, for we must not question the Pope's unerring faculty, that marriage was prohibited pagan priests. The writer is being sarcastic, while also condemning the Church for not following this Pope Syricius. He was Bishop of Rome from 384 to 399 A.D., Clemens Alexandrinus, so now he's citing Clement of Alexandria, 
Clemens tells us that the ancient heretics took occasion to condemn marriage from the precepts and practice of pagan philosophers. The Athenian Hierophantes says St. Jerome, so he's quoting Jerome now, to this day, the Athenian Hierophantes, what, what, it was one of the pagan cults in Athens. The Athenian Hierophantes, to this day, by supping the broth of hemlock, make themselves chaste, being forbidden marriage, before they were admitted into sacred orders, or advanced to prelatical dignity. And discoursing of the lives of the ancient priests of Egypt, out of Chiron the Stoic, he says that they never mingled themselves with women, never would they see their relations and neighbors, no, not their children, from the time that they were consecrated, and they abstained from flesh and wine to suppress all lustful thoughts and desires. So we have three witnesses here that pagan priests in the ancient world had been forbidden marriage. He continues, and he says, and the priests of Cabela, that may be pronounced Cybel by some people, but not by ancient Greeks, and the priests of Cybele, I believe it's Cybele, citing, here he is citing Alexander Ab Alexandro. He's a 15th and early 16th century nobleman, lawyer, and writer from the Kingdom of Naples. And the priests of Cabele did castrate themselves that they might be chaste. And he further adds in the same place, those who, still citing Alexander, those who performed their greatest solemnities, or their chief priests, that they might continue chaste in religion and escape the contagion of women, did emasculate themselves with certain herbs and lost their manliness. Probably the same stuff that we find as ingredients in a lot of our food today because we have a whole generation that's lost their manliness. I'm only interjecting, I'm sorry. Continuing, And this, saith he, was commanded by their pontifical law, which runs thus, and he provides the Latin slogan, or the Latin law, and we would translate the Latin to say, To the gods approach chaste, to observe piety, abandon riches. Improper treatment of a god is punished by the god himself. And Euripides testifies that in Crete, those whom they called the prophets of Jupiter, or Zeus, do not only abstain from flesh, but also from all savory meat, meaning savory food. And the like did the Indian Magi, who were advanced to the priesthood of the sun, again citing Alexander of Naples. And among the Assyrians, the priests of Diane Ekbatana lived in perpetual virginity. 
To add more testimonies is unnecessary, since this is generally confessed by our Romanists, meaning by the Catholic apologists, and urged by Medina as an unanswerable argument against the marriage of priests. In other words, Medina, which is a reference to the 16th century Spanish theologian, Bartholomew de Medina. Medina cited pagans. He was probably a converso, right? That's my guess. Medina cited pagan sources in his arguments against the marriage of priests. So go figure that one. Stropwell, Stropwell continues... And he says, pagan priests defiled themselves with strange women. Arnobius, describing the single life of priests amongst the Gentiles, saith, Where are whoredoms more committed by the priests than in the temples, even by the altars? Where are bodies more practiced and adulteries more meditated? Lastly, burning lust is more frequently discharged in chancels than brothel houses. The chancel is the part of a church by the altar. And I can, I don't have this in my notes, but I could probably find citations in Herodotus, and I'm sure I can find these, citations in Herodotus which describe how the priests would, the priests of the pagan temples, would select, out of burning desire, select a woman from the congregation, if you want to call a pagan, if you want to consider a pagan temple had a congregation, selected a woman from their congregations to have sex with, and informed the women that the god, such and such a god, wanted to have sex with them, wanted to make love to them as Herodotus explained it. And they would have the woman sit in a chamber that was set aside in a temple where no one else had access but the priest. And the priest might have prearranged the sexual liaison with a rich man from his temple attendants, or he may have wanted the woman for himself. And one or the other, they would go in and have the woman and their way with her on a couch. And this happened whether the woman was married or not. And the woman considered it an honor. And her husband considered it an honor that the god wanted to make love to his wife. Tertullian, in his apology, had spoken of the worship of the genitals of the priests at the altars. And from another standpoint, we see that a lot of these perversions were pagan perversions for a very long time. So, Joshua Strabo continues, and he says, Thus do our Romanists forbid their priests to marry. The Council of Trent denounces an anathema against all those who shall say that clerks in holy orders may contract matrimony, and that such a contract is valid, notwithstanding the laws and constitutions of the church. Costerus undertakes to prove that marriage is repugnant to the evangelical priesthood in the very nature of it. 
Others, as Meyer, I'll pronounce this Meyer because it's German, it's spelled like the English word major. Others, as Meyer, plead for a divine law. And that's a reference to the 16th century Protestant theologian Johann Meyer. He's pleading for divine law against what Kosterus said, that marriage is repugnant to the evangelical priesthood. Meyer's taking the opposite position. He's one of the reformers, and he's pleading for divine law. And then our author says, but there, great Bellarmine, and that's a reference, or probably Bellarmine, that's a reference to the 15th and 16th century Jesuit theologian, Robert Bellarmine. But their great Bellarmine is forced to confess that this prohibition is not grounded upon any divine law. In other words, our author is telling us that even one of the greatest theologians of the time, or the most respected theologians of the time, is forced to confess that the idea that priests cannot marry doesn't come from scripture. And he goes on to say that so Aquinas, in other words Thomas Aquinas, made the same admittance. So Aquinas, and this is the most received opinion among them, and yet with them it is a greater crime for a priest to have one wife than many whores, which is expressly prohibited by the law of God. It is lawful with them for priests to keep concubines, paying so much yearly to the official, and the price is set down in their taxa camerae apostolicae. The taxa camerae apostolicae was a list of taxes due to be paid to Pope Leo X from the year 1517, by which payments were sold sacramental absolutions for serious sins. In other words, you pay the church, you get an absolution, right? This is Pope Leo X. This is the Pope of the Fifth Lateran Council. This is the Pope against whom Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the... (laughs) It might be proverbial. He may not have literally nailed it, but this is the Pope against whom Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. The Taxa Camerae Apostolicae was a list of taxes due to be paid to Pope Leo X, by which payments were sold, sacramental absolutions, for serious sins, even for sins yet to be committed in the future. So a wealthy man could actually plan ahead for his own sin and absolution. So we're told that the price of these absolutions for priests to keep concubines was even set down in the Taxa Camerae Apostolicae. And then he goes on to state that for a lawful wife no dispensation will be granted. Nay, It was one of the German grievances that such priests were disposed to live chastely and abhorred 
this sin of uncleanness, were compelled to take dispensations to keep concubines. They, the German theologians, are not ashamed to confess that no priest is to be deposed for the cause of fornication if he confines himself to one woman. So this is the attitude of the reformers compared to the attitude of the Roman Catholic Church that encouraged priests to take concubines and pay for them, pay the church for what was virtually the right to have them, but forbid the priest from marrying. And then he says that in Canon 7, evidently one of the canons of that same council, we have these comfortable words, and he quotes, Though there may be many things which the authority of canonical sublimity may command in these cases, yet because of the defection of our times, in which not only the merits, but also the bodies of men have failed, this severity must be remitted. And they generally affirm that a priest sins more grievously in contracting matrimony than in committing fornication. That's the attitude of the Catholic Church in the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries. He goes on to say that our Roman priests defile themselves with strange women. This is most clear from the testimony of their own authors. Mantuan, the 15th century Italian reformer, Baptista Mantuanus, speaking of the filthiness of the Roman clergy, says, and we're not going to repeat what he says, it's a lengthy Latin passage which would be a long study to translate precisely. But it evidently speaks, and I translated a, a good deal of it, but I haven't written it out. It evidently speaks of the dark things conducted secretly by the priests. And it relates them to sodomy and the worship of Ganymede, who was a Trojan youth that was lusted after by Zeus and taken to Mount Olympus to be his cupbearer as well as the object of his own lustful sodomy. And he continues and he says that in the last visitation in Bavaria such frequent whoredoms were discovered that scarcely three or four were found among one hundred priests which did not either publicly keep concubines or privately contract matrimony, said the orator of Albertus, the Duke of Bavaria, in the Council of Trent. Nay, their popes have not been free. Witness their platina, Onufrius, and others. Take two epitaphs, and he's about to cite two epitaphs from these men, ostensibly from these men. These last references are to Renaissance humanist Bar Bartolomeo Platina, Bartholomew Platina, and to Onofrio de Santa Croce, a cardinal and bishop from the kingdom of Naples. Both men lived in the 15th century. Both of these epitaphs are in Latin. The first one I would translate in this manner. Sixtus has finally fallen. 
lamenting the death of a man, of a priest. Cry in your tomb, sodomite, for pimps, gambling, wine, and love. Now, my Latin is not proficient, but that translation is probably very close. And the second epitaph he cited from these men, we would translate in this manner. Lucretia was the name of this woman who lies in a tomb, but she was actually Thais, a daughter of the bride of Alexander. And the implication seems to be that Alexander was a priest who attempted to hide the death of an illegitimate child. As well as I could translate it. Strapo goes on and says that the filthiness of the Roman clergy is so notorious that I forbear to add other testimonies out of Alvarez Pelagius from his book De Planctu Ecclesiae, which is a 14th century work famous for its rebuke of clerical abuses. And Nicholas Clemangis, or Nicholas Clemengis, from his book De Corrupto Ecclesiae Statu, which was a 15th century denunciation of papal and church corruption, and many other eminent authors. Hence it is that not a few of their great doctors have wished that this ecclesiastical constitution might be abrogated and priests permitted to marry. Far be it that this is forced, now he's quoting from Polydor Virgil, far be it that this is forced should overcome that conjugal chastity and the crime of no fault bring a greater disgrace to the order. What has brought more evil to religion, more grief to good men than the filthiness of priests? Let the right of public matrimony be restored to priests, that they may rather live holily than defile themselves with sins against nature. This last citation from Polydor Virgil, who was an Italian humanist scholar and priest of the 16th century, infers that the priests of his time were satisfying their lusts with more than merely loose women. They were actually committing crimes against nature. Our author says that about the time of the Council of Basel, the Emperor Sigismund drew up certain articles of reformation, in which, among many things, this is remarkable. And he quotes, More evil than good has come to the church from the decree of Calixtus. It is better and more safe for the soul that liberty be granted unto clerks to marry, clerks meaning the clerics, according to the custom of the Oriental Church because after the great schism, the Church of the East, which is called the Orthodox Church, or the Greek Orthodox Church, permitted its priests to marry. And Pope Pius II has left this saying, With great reason marriage was taken from priests, but there is greater reason why it should be restored which words are left out in the later editions of his writings. So even one of the popes thought that priests should marry. And 
the church left those words out of the later editions of his writings. Saying the decree of Calixtus, our author refers to Calixtus I, who was evidently the Bishop of Rome from about 218 A.D. to 223 A.D. And of course, there was no official Pope at that time. None. However, the Roman Catholic Church, in its own corrupt version of history, counts him as Pope. There was no Pope, as we know it, until the time of Justinian. There were bishops of Rome, but none of them were Pope. None of them had any authority over the other bishops, over the other Christian bishops. It is to this Calixtus that the original decree forbidding Christian clergy to marry is attributed, although I can find no mention of him in the writings of the Antonicene Fathers, meaning the early church writers before the First Council of Nicaea, before the 4th century. Evidently, he is only known from an early 3rd century writer named Sextus Julius Africanus, and his writing is no longer extant, but he was quoted at length by the 4th century church historian Eusebius of Caesarea, a man whose motives I often question. Here we have seen Paul of Tarsus prophesying the forbidding of marriage to Christian ecclesiastical leaders. How that prophecy was fulfilled. And we have also witnessed the consequences of that fulfillment in the medieval Roman Catholic Church. Today we see Catholic priests continually being accused of the sexual abuse of women and especially children boy children, male children. And now we know that this has been ongoing for many centuries. It should be no wonder that once man abandons what Paul called the natural use of the woman, that sodomy would be the result. Sodomy, if not fornication. As he had explained in Romans chapter 1. These sodomites have guided the Roman Catholic Church throughout practically its entire existence. So it should also be no wonder that so many other vile sins have been perpetrated by that same church and its leaders. In truth, it was never a legitimately Christian institution, having adopted these and many other pagan practices from its very inception. That is all we will discuss of 1 Timothy chapter 4 this evening. Tomorrow night, I will be here with Pastor Mark Downey. Next week, we plan once again to be on the road. I will probably explain that tomorrow or perhaps next Friday. It's not a long trip, but we're going on the road. Next weekend, I will probably present special notices to all who deny two seed line part 13 from the road thank you for listening praise Yahweh the God of Israel and good night